Well, Father's Day is a, um, I think, always a happy slash sad day. You got to reckon with the slash. You have to acknowledge the slash. It's for me. It's a happy day because I am a dad and I have a dad. And I would add to that at Fondren Church, there's just so many young dads, and that makes me happy. Last night I was in the office studying. Uh, about 9.30 last night, all alone on my territory, my turf up there. And a hallway door opens, and it's Jeff Hightower and Jonathan Grantham. One's a pastor here, one's a deacon. Their wives are with them. They're out double dating. Obviously, they're not studying for a sermon. And they're eating at the Iron Horse Grill, and they thought they'd pop by the office. And a few minutes later, I asked, Jeff, you know, who's babysitting your kids? He said, I don't know. Jonathan, who's babysitting your kids? He, they're with them, I, I don't know. And I thought, you know, years from now, I hope I don't ask these guys, hey, who's dating your daughter? And they say, I don't know. But uh, these guys are dads, young dads, apparently not good dads. But uh, thank God they have, they have Ashley and Jenny as great mothers in their lives. But it's a happy slash sad day. Uh, I didn't preach this sermon last year. Nick Crawford did. Why did Nick Crawford preach the sermon? Namely, because he's a good preacher. Uh, you need to hear a good, fresh voice like Nick's. And secondly, it was just a year removed from when I lost my father-in-law. And two years ago, do you remember this, Brent Shorter? Um, someone else was slated to preach at Vondren, and something happened. We could, that didn't work out. Sort of the last minute, I was scrambling, and my wife texted me from California where she was with her father in uh, his last days. And she texted me. She said, you know, Robert, she always thinks I can do more than I can. She said, you know, Robert, I think you could actually preach the sermon. You don't need to get a fill-in. This was two years ago. You could preach the sermon, have a, a car waiting on you, and hustle to the airport to get here. Uh, she and two of our kids were already out there, and RJ and I were on the way. And Brent was so great, he had a blue light. I hope I'm not getting you in trouble with law enforcement. You're, he's sort of a law enforcement. He's like rogue law enforcement. But he was waiting on me with a, a, a blue light on his truck, and we got out of here. Right after I preached the sermon, I didn't even stick around to pray and just hustled. Minutes counted and was able to make the flight thanks to Brent and us breaking a few laws Along the way that night, my youngest looked out the window of the guest room in Palm Springs, California, and an ambulance rolled in. And I, I woke up and looked out to the main house with the ambulance, no siren for noise by request, just the light. And I thought how terrible and yet how timely that he would pass on Father's Day, just allowing me the opportunity to get out there, to, to be with him in those final hours. That stubborn man hung on. They brought him back from the hospital uh, we got a couple of more weeks with him, flew home, and then lost him. But I think of him every day. And when I'm talking to my kids sometimes and uh, doling out advice, dispensing wisdom, I'll say, you know what Grandpa would say? They'd say, California Grandpa. And uh, I can hear I can hear him, and I just think of him often. And so today, if you've lost a dad, I mean, I, my dad's alive. That's my father-in-law, but I love him. He gave me a daughter, and um, his daughter, my wife. But I just... If you've lost a dad any time the last couple of years, um, I could hug you today. I'm a big hugger, and I'd love to hug you. I know my wife would. Hug her, unless you're a dude. Don't touch her. <laughs> a few years ago, well, a couple years ago, I was preaching at another church. I tried to keep it a secret. Some of you found out. It was out of town, out of state. Some were hoping and actually praying that it was a job interview, that I was going to preach a trial sermon. 
But I was there filling in for a friend. It was a big church. They had three services. I was backstage. They say that. I was backstage in this room, and in the room was a gift basket. In the gift basket were things that I loved. David's original sunflower seeds, diet, peach snapple, and Danish wedding cookies. None of them good for you, but all those things I really love. And I thought, isn't it cool to have a room? They call it a green room. They named it after me. And in this in this green room was this gift basket full of things I love. And I thought, it's just good to be welcomed, isn't it? Do you, do you feel me this morning when you go somewhere, a neighborhood, a group, a church, you, you jump in and, and you just have that feeling there? They have the feeling towards you. You're welcome here. We, we acknowledge you. You're welcome in this place. It, that's a powerful, isn't it? But on the flip side of that, if you go somewhere or try to get in somewhere and there's that feeling, that vibe that you are not welcome here, you're not one of us, it's not powerful, that's painful, isn't it? And we serve a God this morning as we look in Acts at the gospel and racism. I want to say at the beginning that we serve a God who doesn't see us versus them. It's really in his heart to bring people together. We live in an us versus them world, though, don't we? You ever been riding in traffic and there's construction ahead and it's crowded and people are cranky and you need to get one lane over? And you gotta like you gotta forge a friendship, like an instant friendship. You look over and you give eye contact with somebody, you know, you gotta raise your eyebrows, maybe gesture in a nice way, and they let you in. They do that thing, they go. And so it's almost like, you know, it's not us versus them. You're welcome here. You're welcome in my lane. And then the traffic merges some more up ahead and uh, you, you're in the lane and somebody's trying to get in your lane and somebody looks at you with the same look that you looked at the other guy and you think about the guy that let you in and you dart ahead of them, but you do at least think of the guy, right, that let you because old habits die hard. You know what I'm saying? There's us versus them. Can I get in? Can I? You're over there and you're the us and we're the them, but can I get in? And Jesus... T- Lived in such a way and told story after story. Luke 14, God throws a banquet, has a big party. He invites the elite and the elite turn down the offer. And so he invites the basket of deplorables. And they come to the party. And it's a lavish banquet that he gives for those who usually aren't invited to parties. Jesus cares about the outsider, bringing those who are outside in. In Luke 15, there's one sheep that leaves the the, the fold of 100, 99 over here and one over there. And Jesus tells a story to let us know that the heart of the shepherd is to go after the one, to bring an outsider into the fold. There's that famous, uber famous story of that wayward son and that father who leaves the stability of his environment and longs. He scans the horizon for that wayward son and welcomes him with a party so fitting so that God could teach us what he could teach us grace and he could teach us to be a community that said outsiders you are welcome here and I wonder how we're doing as a church do you know that you put too much pressure on me for that it's not just on me to create a welcoming place it's on all of us and if Fondren is your church we want you to be a part of that because there's a feel, there's a spirit in this room as there is in every room. And can you feel now that everybody is welcome here? We have greeters. They're part of a, a welcome team. And we hope that whatever door you enter into, there's somebody smiling at you. What's weird to me is there's a bottle of Germex behind them. They'll shake hands as if to say, we welcome you and value you. And then they turn to the Germex, which says you may be carrying a deadly disease. It's just kind of funny to me, but we do want to do everything that we can to keep our hands clean and welcome you to Fondren Church. 
In Acts chapter 10, here's what I want to do today. This will be a little different. Um, almost 100% of the time we have you turn to the passage and follow along. You're welcome to do that if, if anybody wants to, to keep me honest. In fact, somebody kept me honest from last week's sermon. One of our staff guys, I won't call his name, but he corrected me in something that I said that was theologically not correct. He sent me an email later in the week. He sent me an email. How cool is that? How courageous is that? He's no longer on our team, but I just think, <laughs> you know, that guy's got some moxie, doesn't he? So you may want to correct me if I say something wrong, but it would just be a, a better sermon if you follow along. We will put some passages eventually up on the screen, but follow along with me. And I want you to hear, I want you to hear how this story, how it, how it plays out. We're in Acts 10. Now, we're going to see how the gospel in these weeks, how it confronts agnosticism and legalism and today, racism. There's this man. We're introduced to this man. We're introduced to a whole lot of folks in the book of Acts. you got to go to YouTube and look up Bible pronunciation to kind of follow along at times. But today we're introduced in Acts 10 to a guy named Cornelius. Cornelius, it says, is of the Italian cohort. That means, let's translate that, that means he's a Gentile. He lives in Caesarea. And Cornelius, as a Gentile, means that he is despised by the Jews, at least the Judaizers. The Judaizers were a group of Jews who they looked at the Gentiles as second class and unclean. Sounds harsh, doesn't it? That's how they looked at this entire uh, group of people, this entire culture. And here is Cornelius, and God gives him a vision. And the vision is, hey, Cornelius, you need the gospel. Now stop for a minute, because this is, if I'm going to be a good pastor, I need to say this to a church here in Mississippi in our day. Cornelius, Acts 10, when you read it later, you'll see was a God-fearing man. He was devout. He provided for his family. That's good for a guy to do. He was committed to giving. He, he gave alms faithfully. Yet, in this vision, God is saying to him, you need to be converted. You need the gospel. You need to realize that no amount of good works is going to be able to save you. That gospel is grace, and grace is a gift, and a gift has to be received. And you need to receive this new gift in Jesus and that's part of the vision he says but look you need to send your men you need to talk to a guy named Peter God's doing a great work through him you need to go see this guy Peter but he's he's different than you so send your men so Cornelius in this vision his men are to be sent to Peter Peter's in a town called Joppa and in Joppa he's with a man who is called Simon Simon the Tanner and he is up uh, just doing his thing he, he's in Joppa. Peter is on the roof. Now, what, what's a tanner? If you look up a definition of tanner, it, would, it means in ancient culture, it means someone who tans the hides of animals. The second definition is a cream or lotion that promotes a suntan. The definition is the first one, of course. They didn't have banana boat or Hawaiian tropic back then. Peter is on the roof, so maybe he himself is getting tanner. But God gives Peter on the roof at, Simon, at his house who lived by the sea, the tanner by the sea. Sounds good, doesn't it? And Peter gets a vision of God as well. Remember Joel had prophesied that, that men and women would dream dreams and see visions that when God would do this new work, and so much of it is miraculous and dramatic, I hope you have room in your heart and your mind for the supernatural. And we see this vision as it plays out, and Peter sees a blanket coming from the sky and on this blanket in this vision are animals they are unclean there are pigs in the blanket this was the original pigs in the blanket so you don't realize how influential the bible is right and in this vision Peter's saying these are unclean things 
for 1,400 years it had been Jewish tradition not to eat any of these unclean animals. And God is saying to him, Peter, eat some bacon. Have a pork chop. That would be comparable, excuse the stretch on this illustration, but it'd be, I think it would be comparable to a Baptist preacher having the same vision and God saying, here's a joint and here's some Jack Daniels. Like, no, 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 that is not like, that, that's not good, it's not holy, it's unclean, that could get me fired, the people will start talking, right? Not good. And that's Peter's resistance, but God says, no, 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 you eat. What was unclean is now clean. And we need to learn, we need to realize, as Peter would, that he's not talking so much about this he's talking about that he's no longer talking about food and externals he's talking about internals he's talking about cultures he's talking about obliterating walls of knocking walls down that have divided people for too long and in this vision that peter has there's a knock on the door it's the crew from cornelius and that sets up the story i want to pick it up here in verse 28 acts chapter 10 and he said to them You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. If it's a vision for God, it's probably going to disrupt something in your life. Any vision is disruptive, right? But it's going to probably alter something in you. Next verses, 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Uh, if any verse in 10 I'd want you to leave with, it'd be that. Peter said, hey, what I thought was the way of God is not the way of God. And I need to look at people differently. God values every life. Verses 44 to 46. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among them, among the circumcised, who had come with Peter were amazed Religious people, bound in their traditions, were astonished. Because of the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling. That means worshiping God. Then Peter declared. That's it. We'll leave it there. Because you're going to read this later, right? So here we have something dramatic. We have the Holy Spirit falling on these, these people. Now, listen. We're introduced again to tongues, to this gift that God gave, and some believe that, that he gives. I believe he gives it to the global church today in the proper setting. I believe he's a, God is a God of peace and order. But this gift is, uh, that can be so unifying and so great in the eyes of God is so divisive in the church today. And we've talked a lot about this in this series, so I won't go there fully again. But this gift, is, it's really interesting. Why tongues? Why this dramatic display in Acts 10? We have to back up and say, why tongues in Acts 2? Now, look, a lot of times when God does a work in the early church, there were no tongues. There was no dramatic display necessarily, of, uh, at least of tongues, the manifestation of speaking in tongues. In Acts uh, chapter 8, we're introduced to somebody um, who you know, is converted, but they, the Ethiopian eunuch, but this individual, there's no tongues that fall on them. Saul in Acts chapter 9, we looked at last week. There's a dramatic conversion, but tongues did not fall on him in that moment. Lydia, a a wealthy woman in Acts 16 that we'll look at later, 
she was converted, tongues did not fall on her. So why in chapter 2 and why in chapter 10? I believe it as I've studied it uh, many years ago and and even recently this week that God gave tongues in chapter 2 because all the nations of the world were gathered in Jerusalem at that time and he wanted the gospel of Jesus to be heard in a language that everybody could understand. And I believe here in Acts chapter 10, it was another display and another message from God to say that cultural and ethnic boundaries should be obliterated. That feelings of superiority and inferiority ought to be taken away. And so this miracle, no partiality, none whatsoever. Racism, it needs to end. It is in the heart of God, our God, to bring all races together. Do you believe that? It's in the heart of God to bring all races together. Since we're primarily of one race, let me nudge you a little bit. Make a noise or, or, or shake your head if you believe that. It's in the heart of God to bring races together. Amen. There you go. That's not bad. It's not good, but it's not too bad. It's in the heart of God to bring races together. In Genesis chapter 11 we see that the world came together, that mankind gathered, not to sing we are the world, but to build a tower. Not to build a tower of worship to God, but to build a tower of worship to man, to man's ingenuity and creativity. And God did then what he can do in your life, in my life, too often. And it's really a dangerous thing. But sometimes God will give you just what you want. He'll leave you to your own devices He'll grant your request. And the nations, or those mankind, becomes scattered. There's a variety of languages. And we see soon thereafter the heart of God picking a man named Abraham, selecting him, and, and telling him that he wants to bless him, that he would not just receive the blessing, but he would be a blessing to all the nations that are scattered. And throughout the Old Testament, we see the hints of the heart of God here to bring the races together and in Acts we get glimpses of it in Acts chapter 2 the day of Pentecost all these nations all these people together as one it says they were in one accord waiting on the power of the Holy Spirit they heard the gospel in each of their languages in Acts chapter 16 Paul goes to the city of Philippi he preaches and it tells us that the of the people that were converted the scripture mentions uh, a woman named Lydia a slave girl and a Roman jailer We see a woman, a slave, and a Gentile. God wants us to see diversity, the work that he's doing. Look on the screen at Acts chapter 13 and verse 1. There's mentions of some leaders here. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now there are five leaders mentioned here. You have Barnabas and Saul, who were uh, known as Hellenistic, they were ethnic, Hellenistic Jews, meaning they were ethnic Jews who had adopted Greek culture. There's a man named Menian there, who is of Herod's household, meaning he's Jewish aristocracy. And then you see um, a man who was also called Niger there. He's from sub-Saharan Africa. And then you see Lucius, which is... a Cyrene, which is modern-day Libya, of the leaders mentioned in the early church, I think it's the only reason Luke mentions it here. 
is that of the leaders, one is from the Middle East, one is from the Mediterranean, and two are from Africa. God gives us a picture. How beautiful is this and how convicting is this? He gives us a picture of the early church and he gives us diversity in leadership. Do you hear that? That's the heart of God. Diversity in leadership. Now notice back up to Acts eleven twenty six. I want to tell you about Antioch because this is the church leadership in Antioch. Acts eleven twenty six. very significant for a Christ follower. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were, what a significant phrase, were first called Christians. You see, God lifts up the diversity of leadership. But we see here that they also move away from their racial and cultural identity to embrace their brand new identity in Jesus. We are first and foremost followers of Jesus. Christians simply means little Christ. That women and men would follow after him and live according to his word and be empowered by his spirit and learn to live like him. John Perkins, who, as I've learned, is more famous outside of Mississippi than in the state of Mississippi, is a great prolific writer and leader on racial issues and social justice. And he talks about three races. There's the first race, that's your race. Are you white or black, Hispanic, Asian? Who are you? That's your race. It's your first race. The second race is whoever you're with. It's who are they? What is their race? What is their ethnicity? And then there's the third race, and it's the race that matters most of all. And that is who you are in Christ. Are you a child of God? Ben Carson, I know the very name kind of divides people politically, but during the campaign, I just want to drop this out here for you this morning. Ben Carson was asked, you know, why? You're a a black man. You're an African-American. You're running for the president of the United States. Why don't you talk about race much? And Ben Carson said, I'm a neurosurgeon. And the reporter thought that was a strange response. And Ben Carson followed up and he said, when I operate on people and when they're on the table, I open them up and I'm operating on the part of them that makes them who they are. It's not their skin and it's not their hair. I see that and I want our nation to see that. Can't you celebrate that this morning? Can't you see that the race that really counts is that third race? It's who we are as humans. Not everybody's a child of God, but everybody's created in God's image. And that means we, create, we treat everybody with worth and merit and value. Everybody. No asterisks, no footnotes, no exceptions. But these believers following Jesus came to believe in the good news of the gospel. God was changing people's minds and hearts and very lives in front of them. This, this is God's heart. His heart is to see that the races come together. This tower, by the way, isn't it ironic to know that this tower was built on man's pride and and it it divided them culturally with languages and everything throughout the history of the world. And that is our cultural thing is really a source of so much pride for people. I'm a blank and we're better than you. And that's at the heartbeat of racism. And I understand, look, I, I, I welcome any email I welcome any email of correction, but I, I, I really, I, probably, I just want to deflect if you email me the whole white guilt, right, that, that thing. I, look, there is blatant racism, 
but there's also ignorant racism. And I, I bet you and I need to grow more in the latter. Just a guess. And I'm asking you, instead of being defensive, how about being broken? Let's learn. Let's ask God to obliterate some walls that separate us. If you visit Australia, that sounds like a good idea. You visit a cattle ranch in Australia, you can survey seemingly endless miles of farmland, but no signs of fences. You could ask a cattle rancher in Australia, where are the fences? And he would tell you probably. In all likelihood, he would say, we don't build fences, we dig wells. When Jesus came, it says in John chapter 7, verses 37, 38, and 39, that Jesus came and on the last day of the great feast, that he stood up and with a loud voice he said, if anyone's thirsty, anyone, let him come after me. And he who believes in me, in his belly will spring up living waters, rivers. Not a swamp, not a lake, not a creek, not an ugly pool, but rivers of living water will flow out of him. He said this with all people in mind. He said this after going through Samaria, a place that he shouldn't have gone, speaking to a woman, a gender that he was not supposed to speak to, at a well like he did rivers of living water can we today as a church ask God to help us not build fences but dig wells to come when we gather on Sundays and other times in homes and places and say we are thirsty people and though we have differences we all have this in common we have sin and it is an issue and it is destructive it leads to death and it separates us and Jesus provides the rivers of living water that'll flow through us. And I pray, because I know it's true, that as rivers of living water flow through us, we will be attractive to other people. This morning, I want to share with you just a few uh, uh, takeaways from this, from this passage. The first I've already said to you is go read Acts 10 on your own. Now, if you're a dad, you're not going to do that. You're going to fall asleep on the couch watching televised golf. But the rest of you, read Acts chapter 10 and dig in and see what you learn. But I want to share with you a few things I think that are important takeaways as the gospel confronts racism. The first thing I want to talk to you about is your pride. You say, preacher, don't get in my business, and how do you know I'm proud? Well, you're getting defensive, right? That means you're proud. You're a human being. That means you're proud. You remember last week I shared the story from Luke 18. I love the teaching of Jesus in all places. Luke 18 is particularly magnetic to me. In Luke 18, 1, it says, uh, Jesus told them this parable so that they would always pray. They would never give up. Are you, do you pray? And are you persistent in prayer? Jesus told that story because all of us have something we want, we really want, and it lingers, and that need doesn't go away, and it stays with us. And we pray, and we pray, and we pray. And Jesus said, keep doing that. Keep praying. That's why he told him the parable. And eight verses later, Luke 18, 9, Jesus, same approach. Scripture tells us, Luke, who wrote Luke and Luke, who wrote Acts, tells us that Jesus told him this story. I put it up last week. Jesus told him the story. He told the story to those who look down on other people in their self-righteousness. People with racism, with elitism in their heart. And Jesus told him this story, the popular story of the two men 
who went to the temple to pray. There was the Pharisee, the very religious guy. There was the tax collector and the Pharisee. Um, it says, you know, he, he just, Lord, thank you, I'm not like them. I'm not a, a robber and adulterer and evil person. You know, I'm not so bad. Thank you, Lord. And then there was the tax collector who didn't look up, smote his chest and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And in Jesus' story, the one who was forgiven, the one who was granted mercy, was the one who knew he needed mercy. The one who wasn't relying on his own merits. And that's how Jesus, that's the parable that he told, and that's how he started it. But he ended it this way. He said, those who humble themselves. So I, got, I, told you why, I told you why I was going to tell you the story. I told you the story. And he ends it by saying, hey, you guys, in light of the story, those who humble themselves. Four words. Those who humble themselves. Now, we often think of humble as a passive activity. It's something that happens to us. I am humbled. I was rejected. I didn't get the date. I didn't pass the test. I had a setback. I had a loss. Something happened, and what happened? What happened because of what happened? I'm humbled. I can't, can't be proud at that moment. I'm humbled. Something happened to, to me. I was humbled. But Jesus taught differently. He taught that being humbled is an active activity. It's something that you can do. You can humble yourself. You know that? You don't have to be humbled. If you live that way, look at me. Eventually, you will be humbled. Maybe I'm talking to the 20 and under crowd now. I don't know. But eventually, you will be humbled. That's coming. But Jesus is saying, hey, there's another way. You can humble yourself. How do you humble yourself? Look at this picture. Here's a guy some of you might recognize. I bet all of you know this story. This is Nick Walinda. He's the only man to walk across the Niagara Falls. No, no safety net, by the way. Nothing. He loves adrenaline. He's got great balance. He doesn't drink. He walked across Niagara Falls, and here in 2012, here's 2013, him walking across. You see this, right? Uh, the Grand Canyon. Nick Walinda is a strong Christian. He's outspoken in his faith. And I began to wonder, how does a man like this, how does he stay humble when millions tune in and watch your every step and cheer for you all along the way? How do you stay humble? And in his book, he talks about this. He says, you know, these things that he does, they're, they're just massive displays. They're big outdoor events, obviously. And let me ask you, have you been to an outdoor event? Did you go to Ken, Kenny Chesney and Thomas Rhett like my daughter did? Anybody go to that? Anybody go to a hangout fest like my son did down at the beach? If you've been to an outdoor activity anytime recently or anytime, you will recall that outdoor events can draw huge crowds and therefore make huge messes. And Nick Walinda, after these huge events where thousands of people show up, he will, before any interviews or anything, he will spend, even if it takes a couple of hours, he will spend a couple of hours cleaning up with the cleanup crew. On hands and knees, nooks and corners and crevices, going everywhere around the place, picking up, throwing trash. And for him, he says, it is that act of service that humbles him. And, and it's a balance from the glare and the spotlight. Now, Proverbs 16, 8, all of us know this, right? You don't even have to be a person of faith, a Christian, to know this verse. Pride comes before the, before the fall. This guy probably thinks about that verse a lot, right? How can I be humble 
so that I don't fall. So I'm saying to you this morning, here's a man, a famous man, an unbelievably uniquely talented, crazy, stupid man who follows Jesus, who has this plan that he shared with anybody that wants to listen is there's a way that I intentionally humble myself because he says, I follow a man who washes feet, who is, shows no partiality, who's not a respecter of persons, who has it in his heart that we wouldn't be divided in us versus them, superior people and inferior people. So I want to ask you, what do you do? What do you do to humble yourself? And I just want to offer to you that one of the things we can do as a church, one of the ways we can humble ourselves is to serve others, to love and serve and get to know others who are not like us. I grew up in Starkville, Mississippi. I went to public schools. The years would vary, but some, sometimes when it comes to the black and white, sometimes I was in the slight majority, sometimes I was in the slight minority. I grew up with really good friends, Kevin Bell and Kevin Allen, Michelle Greer and Carla Harris, some friends that I've kept in touch with through the many, many years. When I married a girl from the West Coast, she thought it was strange and offensive. When we had a high school reunion that ended with a zero, and the blacks had theirs, and the whites had theirs. She couldn't understand it. It just seemed wrong. And what I want to say to us is this. I was watching my brothers and sisters, the leaders in the Southern Baptist Convention over the last decade. And there was this real sense of white church leaders need to make an apology. Now you may not agree with that. You may be passionately agreeing with that. But what I do want you to know is that the black-eyed American history is racism. And these leaders did this, and I think there was hope. I think they harbored hope that things would just change. Because leaders are like that. Leaders are redemptive people. Leaders are hopeful people. Leaders love decisions and making decisions and seeing change. But it was a fallacy to think that this decision could be made, this statement could be issued, this apology could be given, and that blacks would flood into white churches thinking they're lucky stars that they could worship with us. Because what we've learned, we should have already known it, but what we've learned is that a lot of black people like to worship in black churches. And a lot of white people like to worship in white churches. Today, it is my prayer that God would more and more and more integrate our church. If you're with me on that, would you clap? What I know is that we love the idea of that, but practicing it is more difficult. The Atlantic Monthly, forget the church for a second, the Atlantic Monthly did a study on, or did an article on the studies about cool young hipsters who lived in urban areas who said, I want to live in the mixed neighborhood. It's designed to be a mixed neighborhood. They wanted that, but once they got into the neighborhood, not long after that, the vast majority began to gravitate to people who looked just like them. And it is true. It is so true that there's something in us, whether it's blatant or whether it's ignorant or whether we're just not intentional enough, is that we want to be around people just like us. And so I do want us to manage our expectations. 
Because this doesn't come quickly. And you can't come and look at this church and say, well, Robert, it's not diverse enough. What are we doing? I mean, you can say that. But I'm ahead of you. It is my prayer that God would grant our church the grace that we wouldn't look so much like an egg carton, if you know what I'm saying, white people in rows, and look more like a salad bowl. But you play a part in that. So when it comes to managing our expectations, I would say don't necessarily look around and think about who's in this room right now. We really need to think about the relationships that you and I have. In Miami, before I married Susan, I was a bachelor, of course, for many, many years, and I had two roommates, Ken Osley, the darkest white guy I've ever known, and Daryl Burgess, one of the blackest black dudes I've ever known. And I'm so thankful because I would watch the news prior to living with Daryl Burgess and I would just see everything through the lens of the white man. And then I roomed with him in Coral Gables, Florida, which is, we were kind of living in a house that's owned by a church, so we were slumming it. But it was in a nice neighborhood. And more than once, Daryl Burgess came home in his car to his house with a police officer behind him. Now, I'm not talking about the news. I'm talking about somebody that I know and love. Driving while black. So through that time and through that relationship, I learned a lot. And since I've been here at Fondren with a few African-American friends that I know, I have said to them that are involved in our church, would you help raise my ethnic IQ? Because I'm dumb. I say some dumb things. There's a guy in our small group. The first time I went to lunch with him, I said, hey, bro, what's your ethnicity? He looked at me 